Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Hey, we all wondered why Donald Trump was saying such nice things about Vladimir Putin while he was running for president. Well, now, thanks to Michael Cohen, we know why. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday, December 3rd? So good to see you today. And uh, welcome back from uh, what I hope was a good weekend for you uh, and certainly was for me. Hope you had a chance to uh, spring back relax, spend some time with friends and family, recharge your batteries, get a little work done and around the house and ready to go jump into a whole new week, a week uh, uh, where not a lot, not a lot's going to be happening here in Washington, D.C. Things, of course, have put on, been put on hold. Uh, we'll be starting today with the uh, first of all, the, uh, the, the funeral of uh, President Bush, George W. H. W. Bush on Wednesday at the National Cathedral, but it begins today with the president, former president lying in state in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol starting late this afternoon. Here on the Bill Press Show, we will bring you up to date on everything that's happened since we were last together, Thursday for me, uh, with all of you, uh, with our good friend Jason Dick from Roll Call on Friday. Thanks to Jason for doing a good job filling in. Uh, and it's good to have our team back together again with both Peter and uh, Ray Rogers. So, you know, we're all we're all here. And Cyprian Bolding, of course, behind the closed door, uh, ready to go with the news of the day. Lots and lots to talk about. And we want to hear from you and your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, at BP Show, on Twitter, at BP Show. Coast is clear. Donald Trump has not tweeted yet this morning. So go for it. Yet. Yet this morning. Uh, again, lots to talk about, including it looks like a ceasefire with China in the big trade war. All right, on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the full court press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, we have the final four in college football. We oh know my who God. the four teams will be. 
it will be number one. Alabama. Uh, number two. Alabama. Clemson. Number I don't know three. why we're doing this story this morning. <laughs> well, I mean, it's relevant. Roll we're going tide, to the. Roll uh, tide, roll well, tide. we'll just wait just a second because uh, uh, oh. Notre Dame is number three. Oklahoma uh. is number four, which means Alabama will play Oklahoma. Clemson will play Notre Dame. Alabama cemented their number one status after winning the SEC championship on Saturday. Here's what that sounded like when their backup quarterback, Jalen Hurts, had to come in to win the game. Hurts in the backfield with Harris. Harris splits out. Hurts will keep it himself to the 10, to the 5. Mm. Touchdown, Alabama! Jalen Hurts! Which mm. is a remarkable story because he was their Ran starting quarterback yeah. last year, yeah. and then they sat him down for Tua Tagovailoa, who's going to win the Heisman this year. But he got hurt, so Jalen Hurts came in and won the game. All right. Those games kick off uh, December 29th is when the, we'll have the first round, and then, of course, we'll have the actual uh, championship game about a week after that. Also, did you see any good movies over the weekend, Bill? By the way, uh, I saw yeah? the best movie of the year. Whoa, what'd you see? I'm not going to tell you. What do you mean you're not going to tell me? <laughs> what are you keeping a secret for? I saw the best movie of the year. I'm going to talk about it a little later, too. Green Book. Oh, yeah, okay. Without doubt. Hands okay. down. That's, all right. Hands down. I haven't seen it's it yet, it. but it's I want to see it. Well, uh, let's take a look at the weekend box office because uh, the Green Book, Green Book uh, is not in super wide release, so it's not going to yeah. it's not going to be at the top. But uh, number one again is Wreck It Ralph two, the cartoon. Ralph breaks the internet. It's number one. They're saying that it pulled in twenty six million dollars after the Thanksgiving performance. Uh, it has made uh, a, a significant amount of money. The Grinch, you know, they remade The Grinch. Which really? I don't know why you're doing this. I no, really don't I understand why you're doing. This. They got the, the, right. Mary Poppins is back too. Mary Poppins or is coming be. back too. Christmas yeah, Mary Pop Poppins is coming back. So the Grinch came in second with 17 million dollars, and Creed II, the latest from the Rocky franchise, came in at number three, making about 16.8 million dollars. None of those are movies that I really care to see. <laughs> mm, no, I, there's not a lot out there to tell the truth. Not really. No. no. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. He was a president we could respect because he showed respect for the office of the presidency. President George H.W. Bush. Hello, everybody. Here we go to Monday, Monday, December 3rd. So good to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us wherever you are in this great land of ours. It's good to be with you on this Monday. Hope your weekend was a good one. And we are off to the races here this morning on the Bill Press Show online, on the radio, and on television. Thanks so much for being part of the program. You are the most important parts of the program. Yeah, we have uh, usually three uh, excellent guests every day. Today, no exception, with Melanie Zanona from uh, The Hill joining us a little bit later. Uh, Max, Max Bergman from the Center for American Progress on all things Russia-related. Uh, we learned a lot from Michael Cohen about the Russian connection. Can anybody spell collusion? Uh, and also joined a little bit later by Matt Fuller, who also covers Congress for HuffPost. So with that lineup of guests, my point is you, with all due respect to them, you are the most important guest of all. Uh, we love having you with us, and your comments matter as much as mine or anybody else's. Send us your comments on Twitter, 
at BP Show as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, our very own YouTube channel. Check it out. Check it out. Uh, Don't forget to check our podcast as well. We've got to keep that podcast growing. It's going so great. Go to BillPressShow.com. And don't forget, sign up for the podcast, and then you get all the other goodies that we put out there. I have to say, I did an interview uh, with our old friend Emma Roller. Uh, that we put up on, on oh, yes. uh, over the weekend because she wrote about the tear gas that we used at the border mm-hmm. and how it is mm-hmm. not used at all in war. It's 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 you know it's a chemical weapon. A lot of uh, countries re- recognize and realize that. And what typically happens after you use tear gas is is an escalation. So she goes into the whole thing, the whole history of it. Uh, it's a very very good interview with her, which you, again you can only get yeah. if you're subscribed to our podcast. Very, very smart. She moved from Washington. We miss her. Yeah, she did. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She uh, wanted me to tell you hello. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, thank you. So that's it. So that's good. One, just one example of some of the stuff you miss if you're not signed up for our podcast. We're also joining you, of course, on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, and, of course, on television on Free Speech TV, the one and only progressive TV channel in the country. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, what do you, well I, I, I got to start with the, those who are there, there at the very top of the hour might have heard me mention this, but uh, went out Saturday night to the movie, saw the best movie I've seen in a long, long time. Absolutely the best movie for 2018. So if you have it, if it's not in your town yet, not in your city yet, look for it. It's called The Green Book. And it's based on a true story, which, by the way, I didn't know anything about. But it's a story of the Green Book was uh, Peter. You probably know it's a book. I mean, I've heard about it. I had. It's a book that when in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, when African Americans traveled in the South, you know, they weren't allowed in most restaurants, in most hotels or inns. And so the Green Book was a list of places where they could stay, where they were accepted. Which is a remarkable thing to think about. I mean, this was not that long ago. Right. Unbelievable. Uh, and so there's this. Jazz pianist, head of a great quartet. His name was Don Shirley, real, real live person, African American, uh, who hired a driver. To, he was on a concert tour, and so they take off for a concert tour, which starts out in like Ohio, Indiana, but then they go down Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi. They end up in Birmingham, and uh, with this. Green Book and the driver. Hmm, let's see, Birmingham in the 1960s. Yeah, what was happening right. down there? Yeah, right. And the driver he hires is the manager, former, well, the man, Copacabana in New York. He's the manager at the Copacabana. Copacabana shuts down for two months and the guy's out of work. So he gets his job driving Don Shirley down south. It is an incredible story. And you know what was great about First of all, just the message is so powerful all the way through it, and what's so great about it, for the, their relationship and how they, they they could not be two more different people than this really classy j- jazz pianist and this rough-and-gruff Italian manager, you know. Hey, so, so the jazz pianist is played by Mahershala Ali, who won an Academy Moonlight. Award for Moonlight, uh, and Viggo Mortensen, actor. who's amazing. They're both yeah. great. They're both, they're both really great. It's such a, it's such a you know... I hate to use the cliche. It's such a feel-good movie, and it makes you proud of America uh, that we that we came through that and have done so much better since that period. Uh, and what I loved about it is that the audience was so much into it. You know, 
the audience would applaud great lines and applaud great moves that some people. I took. love when that happens. Oh, it was really, yeah, it was really, it was, it was really great. So, um, uh, anyhow, uh, enjoy, enjoy Green Book, and remember, uh, I told you about it. And when it gets the Oscar next year, remember where you heard about it first, right here. Yes, indeed. Sad news over the weekend uh, with the loss of former uh, President George H. W. Bush. Of course, uh, Barbara Bush, former first lady, died last year. They'd been married 73 years, uh, the two of them. And I got to tell you, I had great uh, admiration for President uh, President Bush, the first President Bush. Um, look, obviously, I didn't agree with everything he did, but he was just a decent man. He was a good man. He really served his country, the last president to serve in combat and become president of the United States. Uh, you know, he was a naval pilot. We saw him, and we've seen that video when his plane crashed off the aircraft carrier and they pulled him out of the drink there. Uh, and he went on to become a, you, you, uh, our ambassador to the United Nations, our ambassador to China, uh, head of the Republican National Committee, vice president of the United States, president of the United States, uh, an incredible career of public service, uh, five children, married to Barbara, 73 years, father of two governors, and one of those governors becoming president of the United States. So an incredible contribution uh, to this country. I met him on a couple of occasions. Um, I'll never forget the first time I met him. Uh, he was former president then, uh, and the head of this, I went to a big dinner, and the head of this dinner said, have you met President Bush? And I said, no, I never had a chance to meet him. And he said, oh, I want to introduce you. He said, stay here. Uh, and next thing I know, here's the former president of the United States walking across this ballroom to say hello to me. And I said, Mr. President, no, you didn't have to come over here. And he said, oh, no, you're a famous man, Bill Press. And I said, I don't know about that. He said, hey, you're a famous man in the Bush household. We watched you every night. <laughs> that was uh, back in the uh, back in the crossfire days. Um but, you know, uh, I'll tell you, even though, for example, uh, I didn't support the first Gulf War, um, which he, of course, initiated uh, to push Saddam Hussein back out of Kuwait, I do really admire the fact that he didn't go into that war and he didn't start that war until he had 38 other nations lined up to send troops. So it was not just American troops. And you also had to admire his restraint at that time that after he had pushed, achieved the mission, there was a clear mission, get, get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Once he achieved that mission, he brought the American troops home. Uh, I might point out, what is it, 17 years now, and we're still in Afghanistan? No clear mission, no restraint shown uh, in that case. It was the same thing, you know, um, a, a man who really did reach across the aisle and respected the office of the presidency of the United States. There's this tradition that the outgoing president leaves a little note for the new incoming president, even if that president may not be the, the member of your party. Bill Clinton, over the weekend, read the very moving note that George H.W. Bush left in the drawer of the Oval Office for Bill Clinton. I wish you great happiness here. There will be tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. Yeah. And by the way, he ended that note 
I'm rooting for you. What a contrast between Donald Trump accusing Barack Obama of treason. That says it all. In fact, I think every if reading every good thing, and there are so many of them from so many people uh, across the specter over the weekend, so many good things said about President George H.W. Bush, every one of them was like the exact opposite of what Donald Trump is in terms of respect, in terms of dignity, in terms of humility, all the words that were used in terms of public service, in terms of putting his country above his politics uh, and his own self-interest, uh, everything everything was just like the exact opposite of George H.W. Bush. Uh, uh, he ran for president, of course, once before Ronald Reagan ended up beating him in the primary, but then picking him as vice presidential candidate. Here back in 1980, a blast from the past, George H.W. Bush making the big announce. Ladies and gentlemen, I am a candidate for president of the United States. To say went on to become vice president for eight years and then president for only four years. And one of the things that got him in trouble and probably lost the presidency was this moment that we remember from the Republican National Convention when he accepted the nomination. Read my lips. No new taxes. And, of course... He broke that pledge. He broke that pledge and broke with his party. Why? Because he saw that the country was not, uh, not broke, but running out of money, was either going to go into deficit spending and maybe even to a spiral of a depression, and he wanted to avoid that for the good of the country, for the solidity of the economy, he broke that pledge and did agree to raise taxes. And, of course, the Republican base turned against him, and that really weakened him of, in terms of losing uh, four years later to Bill Clinton. Um, so all in all, uh, really a great, great man uh, and a great loss to the country, but, but performed great service to the country. His body will return from, will be brought here from Houston this afternoon on Air Force One, uh, will lie in state in the rotunda of the United States Capitol, until Wednesday morning, when it would be the funeral service will be held at National Cathedral here in Washington D.C. Um, yes, I was wondering if he would be invited. Yes, President Trump and the First Lady will be there. Not sure yet. I would hope that they don't ask him to do a eulogy of the uh, former president because the former president he let it be known that neither former President Bush voted for Donald Trump. Um, and um, but the the service will be held Wednesday, and then he'll be buried Thursday in Houston. Meanwhile, back on the political front, some stunning news over the weekend, uh, end of last week after I left you last, uh, by Michael Cohen, the president's personal attorney. Okay, twelve years Michael Cohen worked with Donald Trump as his personal attorney, had his own office right alongside of Donald Trump's in Trump Tower. They were close. They were like brothers. They were involved, as Donald Trump told us before. In fact, he, he has said he's such a good person. He was his um, business, private business attorney, his personal attorney, knows more about Donald Trump's business and, uh, and affairs than anybody else. Remember, he's the one who arranged the $130,000 hush money payment to uh, Stormy Daniels. Uh, Michael Cohen, uh, who is, of course, under indictment by the U.S. attorney in New York, um, 
for some financial financial dealings having to do with Donald Trump's empire. Uh, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty on Friday and admitted that he had lied to Congress about Donald Trump's dealings with mm, Russia. Yeah. So during the campaign, let's back up in 2016, Donald Trump over and over again said, in fact, here's a little montage of Donald Trump saying on so many occasions, you remember this, what do you mean, Russia? I had, I because the question was, Donald Trump, you're a Republican. Why are you saying all these nice things about Vladimir Putin? Why won't you criticize Vladimir Putin? This guy has invaded the Ukraine. He seized Crimea, stole that territory. There are rumors that they're trying to influence the 2016 election. Why won't you say anything bad about Vladimir Putin? You must have some business deals in Russia. Donald Trump denying it over and over and over again. You said you have no investments in Russia, but do you owe any money to Russian individuals and institutions? No. Will I sell condos to Russians on occasion? Probably. I mean, I do that. I have a lot of condos. I don't have any deals with Russia. I had Miss Universe there a couple of years ago. Other than that, no. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. I had the Miss Universe pageant, which I owned for quite a while. I had it in Moscow a long time ago. Uh, but other than that, I have nothing to do with Russia. That's just amazing. It's pretty clear on it. Amazing. There's over very little and ambiguity over. there. Yeah. No business deals with Russia. Nothing to do with Russia. Boom. And it turns out that was all we know now from Michael Cohen. A great big fat lie. He was lying. By the way, in Michael Cohen's guilty plea, Donald Trump is referred to as individual one. That's pretty great. This is like client number nine. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Elliot Spitzer, remember that? Client number nine. This is individual number one. And so Donald Trump was lying, and Michael Cohen was lying and lied to Congress about it. What the fact is, and the truth is, that at that very time when Donald Trump was doing all this denial, he and Michael Cohen both were negotiating with Moscow, something that Donald Trump had wanted for decades. For three decades, he'd been trying to get a deal to build a, a hotel in Moscow. And this project, so they, and then it would fall apart, back together again. So again, this first six months of 2016, while Donald Trump is insisting no business deals with Russia at all, he and Michael Cohen, which Michael Cohen uh, uh, reported and revealed in this guilty plea on Friday, the two of them were brokering a deal, negotiating a deal, with Putin's guys in Moscow to build a 100-story Trump Tower in Moscow. And get this, the icing on the cake was they were going to give Vladdy Putin a $50 million penthouse condo at the top of this Trump Tower to sweeten the deal. So Trump was lying about it all the time. Michael Cohen was his agent, and Michael Cohen said, we had already dropped that, but that project, it was dead. It was dead. No, no. Turns out it was not. It was very much at the very time. So big mystery. Why was Donald Trump saying such nice things about Vladimir Putin? Well, now we know the answer to that. But here's the big. Here's, here's, here's what I think is significant about this. So this happened 
with the U.S. attorney in New York. But this ties directly to the Robert Mueller investigation. What Michael Cohen did on Friday is he connected the dots between his activities and Donald Trump's activities. And what is the common thread here? Russia. It's dealings with Russia. It is trying to make business deals with Russia. It is talking at the very time he's running for president. It is making deals with Vladimir Putin. In other words, if, if there's one great big word that links these two together, it is collusion. You say there's no evidence of collusion? Here it is. It's right out there in the open. Now, no, cannot deny it. It's Donald Trump, a guy named Felix, Felix Sater, who was a Russian oligarch that they, that, that they hired to help them because he had a lot of contacts in Russia, uh, and Donald Trump himself, the three of them. Uh, and, and Trump, by, by the way, admits, he admitted before he went down to Argentina, which I thought was a, a very uh, enlightening, uh, on the South Lawn of the White House, Peter, where he said, you know, even if I did do it, uh, there was nothing wrong because, he said, I didn't think I was going to win anyway, so I had to keep my business deals going because if I didn't win, then I still had to have some business deals. He's lying about a project that everybody knew about. I mean, we were very open with it. We were thinking about building a building. I guess we had in a form. It was an option. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, we decided, I decided ultimately not to do it. There would have been nothing wrong if I did do it. If I did do it, there would have been nothing wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's all over the place with that, right? I mean, it's a mess of an answer. A mess of an answer. But so he says, he's admitting, and yet he's not, he's denying and admitting at the same time that he was still trying to make this deal in Moscow. But why not, he said, because what was wrong with it? I'm, I was running, but I didn't expect to win, so I had to keep my business deals going. Well, if there was nothing wrong with it, why'd they lie about it? If there was nothing wrong with it, think about that. Why did he lie about it? And, I mean, honestly, I think an easy answer to that question is lying is second nature to him. That's true. That is true. Not that that makes it okay, <laughs> but, right. but I think also, that's why he lied about I it. I think he lied, He knew because if he admitted it, then, in fact, he had all kinds of contacts with Russia, which he was denying in that earlier clip we played. So he's going out there all over the Sunday shows, all over the shows saying, I have no business deals with Russia. And now he says it's a deal that everybody knew about. No, they didn't because he was denying it. And then he says, but if I did do it, oh, God, it's such a mess of an answer. Right. Here's the, like this is the thing with Trump, right? If you're looking for how to figure this out, it's the Occam's razor answer. He just lies. There was a there was a question, I remember somebody pointed this out during the campaign. There was a fear that the October surprise in 2016 was going to be, "Ooh, we got your tax returns. Here are your yeah, tax returns." Yeah. Not that again, I don't think it would have mattered, but that that was a that was something that the Trump campaign was concerned about. And Trump said, well, if someone comes out with my tax returns, I'll just I'll just deny it and say it's not mine. That That's just, I, he yeah. just admitted, basically, no matter what happens, I'll just say it's not mine. I'll just lie. Yeah, I'll just lie. Yeah. That's that's right. the answer. Right. Uh, a couple of other little, so that, that this raises the stakes of the entire Russian investigation, both the Mueller front and the New York front. They are now connected. They're now united. 
and it's one and the same. It's one and the same investigation, and Mueller's got all the evidence of collusion he needs now to move forward. I think it's only a matter of time before before Donald Trump himself uh, is is charged by Robert Mueller. It's their close. Mueller is closing in on him um, with the help of the U.S. Attorney uh, in New York. Um, just a couple of other items. Donald Trump is not the only world leader uh, in little legal jeopardy these days. The prime minister, if you note a tone of glee in my voice, I do not deny it. <laughs> the man, I think, is no friend of the United States, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. Uh, the police yesterday uh, uh, recommended that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu be charged with corruption and be arrested and indicted. Uh, the police made this recommendation to the uh, Israeli prosecutor general or attorney general, whatever he's called uh, in that country. Uh, I would point out also this is the third time this year that the police have recommended that charges be filed for three different cases of alleged corruption, if you will. Is that bad? Being charged three times in one year when you're the uh, leader of a country, is that bad news? Not compared to Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's about as bad that's as it can get. Bad. That's pretty that's bad. pretty bad. And t- twice, Bibi has escaped. We will see whether he skates again, but at some point, this has got to catch up with him. Three different cases of corruption. It's not that three times on the same case. Three different cases of corruption. The third one yesterday. Um, and another world leader uh, that uh, uh, some more bad news for him came out over the weekend, which is why did the CIA, remember we said the CIA was pretty conclusively said that um, Mohammed bin Salman, the, prime, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, was behind and did order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist and uh, columnist for the Washington Post, resident of the state of Virginia, what was it based on? We now know this came out over the weekend. It was based on the fact that there were 11, the CIA intercepted 11, 11 conversations between the crown prince and the man who was in charge of the squad of 15 thugs that went to Istanbul to kill Jamal Khashoggi. At the very time the assassination was taking place, that period of the squad arriving in Istanbul, carrying out the deed, and then coming back during that time, which was maybe two hours, 11 times the crown prince spoke with the head of that gang. Now, what were they talking about? Not the latest. You wonder. Yeah. Not the latest soccer scores, right? Or uh, rugby scores or camel races or whatever. No. You know what they were talking about. I mean, if that doesn't link... MBS to the murder of Khashoggi. Don't know what does. But of course, Donald Trump, who has still not condemned the Russians for interfering in the 2016 election, has still not condemned the crown prince of Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and he never will. I just saw over the weekend, James Mattis, James Mattis said, there is no smoking gun that links him to this. And it's like, what are we going to have to see? Uh, what are we going to have to do? There's, we've been given a tape. Yeah, yeah. And we're not going to listen to it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I if guess, you're not looking for a smoking gun, you can't see a smoking gun. What do they want? Do they want a video of 
MBS with a bone saw in his hand. I, I guess that's the only smoking gun that would be acceptable for them. Uh, let me put it this way. We may, not, we may not have a smoking gun. We got a smoking phone call. Yeah. We got a smoking phone 11 times during that little window uh, between the two of them. Uh, case closed as far as I'm concerned. So much to talk about. And now uh, Congress kind of thrown in a loop this week because they were they were all set to shut down the government if Donald Trump didn't get his funding for his wall. Uh, those things have been put on hold and other news from Congress. Let's find out what's going on uh, and also the uh, results of all the leadership battles in the Republican on the Republican and Democratic side in the House. This is the Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, Monday, December 3rd, it is the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We come to you today thanks to the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They are a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families at all of our great grocery chains across the country, the men and women you meet in uh, the uh, supermarkets, uh, serving you at every level there, members of the UFCW. Thank them for their good work and thank them for their support of the program. Their website, check out more, is ufcw.org. Joining us in studio with the latest from what's happening just down the street here in the United States Capitol, Melanie Zanona covers the Congress for the great newspaper, The Hill. Mm-hmm. Hi, Melanie. Nice Hi. to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, start off the week. It's good to have you here. Um, and we've been stirring things up a little bit this morning, even before you arrived. Peter? Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. You can chime in, give us your comments on any topic at any time. Uh, Resistance Stevie says Trump had two tower deals going on simultaneously in Russia. Mueller has enough to charge him with bribery, defrauding the U.S., tax fraud, conspiracy to rig an election. His children and his cohorts can be charged with RICO crimes and more. He'll be dancing for his life now. Uh, that is one person's take on what's going on with Trump. Also, there was big news over the weekend that Donald Trump said that there had been a deal, a truce that had been reached with China over trade deals. Mike points out, though, uh, according to reports out of China, a trade war truce is not as claimed by Trump. Chinese issued a carefully worded statement not aligning with Trump's statement. Hmm. <laughs> Another Trump By fake way, news fantasy? It, it yeah, appears yeah. so. By the way, the whole thing is with Trump saying that we have scored a big victory with China. I mean, my reading of it is that he caved on yeah, China. Yeah, it appears as though he that's was, what happened. He was threatening to, to up the tariffs yep. from 10% to 25% on everything, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then he agreed to just lower his rhetoric there. But I, I think, I think. But the economists that I've seen who've looked at this so, so-called trade deal said China, China didn't give up anything. Yeah, yeah. We did. Uh, and Phil, chiming in, says, I'm not sure if we can call this collusion just yet, but with all the lying to the FBI and Congress and trying to get their story straight, there's definitely enough out there to spell conspiracy. So maybe not collusion yet, but certainly looks like a conspiracy. Anyway, if you have any t- top comments on any topic at any time, BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show. If you excuse us, Melanie, we'll get to the Congress in just a session. But on, on that point, the one clip we didn't play, we should, I think, is uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler, who's the incoming chair of the House Judiciary, right, points out the significance of what Michael Cohen said in terms of this is Donald Trump, a business deal that he was negotiating at the time 
with Vladimir Putin when he was running for president. Jerry Nadler, why this is significant. And of course, Melanie, something that he probably will be looking into. Absolutely. Here he is. The fact that he that he was lying to the American people about doing business in Russia uh, and that the Kremlin knew he was lying gave the Kremlin a hold over him. And uh, one question we have now is, does the Kremlin still have holds over him because of other lies that they know about? Raises a good question. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's hugely significant. They knew when Donald Trump was saying, and we played this clip in the first half hour, too, over and over and over again, I have no business deals with Russia. I have no, I'm not trying, you know, just denying it, denying it. The Kremlin knew he was lying. Democrats say he was compromised in that respect because they knew he was lying. They had something over him. Right. So what else do they have over him? How were they using that? Yeah, exactly. So that question lingers. So we had some big um, votes last week uh, on leadership in the uh, uh, in, in the House of Representatives, certainly. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, not really a tough ride to the to getting the votes in the caucus. No, for all the hoopla, we ended up seeing the same top three leaders in Democratic Party right now be elected for next year. So not a whole lot of change, but Nancy Pelosi still has to get the rest of the votes before the floor vote on January 3rd. Her and her allies say it's an easy number within reach. She's very close. She got 203 votes in conference, and she only needs 218 on the floor. Right. So we think she'll be able to get there. Why was it that the Democrats, in looking for new leadership, new voices, new faces, younger leadership, uh, there was a challenge to Nancy Pelosi, but no challenge to Steny Hoyer, who's a year older, and no challenge to James Clyburn, who's the same age? Right. Well, that's part of the problem. No one has stepped up to the plate. Part of the issue is there's no one below them. Joe Crowley was someone who was thought to could have stepped up to the plate and made a challenge for one of those positions. But, of course, he was knocked out this summer in a primary. (laughs) Right. And so you've seen a lot of this bottlenecking of power in the House, and that has discouraged a lot of these would-be potential future speakers or members of leadership leave the House, whether it's Javier Becerra, Joe Crowley getting knocked out in a primary. So there just isn't a bench right now that's an obvious bench that could climb up the ranks. Uh, Well, there were 16 or 17, right, who who put together this little protest, but they, their number, they couldn't go beyond that. No, they right? couldn't, and they're dro- they're actually dropping numbers as well. We've seen at least one person pull his name off the letter. We're hearing two other people in the Capitol, Bill Foster and Ed Perlmutter, saying they're willing to support Pelosi on the floor if they can get some sort of succession plan from Pelosi, some sort of commitment about her promising to transfer power or to help groom the next generation of leaders. So I think she'll be able to pick off quite a few more in the coming so weeks. So technically, the race for speaker is not over yet. Correct. But. It's in, all but over. All but over. Right. Yeah. Now, one of the other uh, chal- uh, real closer, much closer races was between Barbara Lee and Hakeem Jeffries for caucus chair, correct? That's right. Uh, the position that Joe Crowley Right, which held. would be the, the number five House Democrat number five who's number four it would be assistant leader assistant leader because the democrats remember you they carved out that extra position for Clyburn when they went back in the minority they decided to keep that position so that would technically be number four with house caucus chair being the fifth position and who's the the assistant leader do we know yet uh ben ray lujan ben ray lujan okay Uh, so number five would be this caucus chair and the vote between hakeem jeffries and barbara lee 
uh, Jeffries won by 10 votes, 10 point, 10 votes, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. This was actually the what most, happened there. This was the most competitive race that we saw. It was two mm-hmm. members of the Congressional Black Caucus. In one corner, you had Barbara Lee, this fierce progressive. She's 72. She's a veteran lawmaker. She had run for vice chair and lost by two votes in 2016. So she threw her name into the race this year for caucus chair. But then in the other corner, you had Hakeem Jeffries from New York. He's someone who's thought to be a rising star in the party. He also was someone who really wanted Clyburn, Clyburn to maybe make a challenge and move up. He wants to see more CBC members in leadership, and he decided to also run. So it put pit them against each other. And what you saw was an interesting divide. Not only did you see the regional divide between New York versus California, so you had people mm-hmm. saying, Joe Crowley of New York is leaving. we got to feel this New York void. But then you also saw this generational difference of these younger lawmakers who said, we just want a fresh face in the party. And I think that is why ultimately Hakeem Jeffries got the nomination from the party. OK, so on the Republican side, and by the way, both good people. And I mean, I may think um, the, the Democrats would have been great with Barbara Lee or Hakeem Jeffries in charge there, um, Barbara Lee longtime friend of mine, but my, of course, I'm in the Californian, so you know where my <laughs> allegiance, allegiance is. But um, but Jeffries will do a great job there. I he believe. will. I mean, you know, and, for and some he members. Is, you're right. He is the next generation, the one is. member of the leadership of this next generation. And importantly, some people think it will actually help Pelosi on the floor because now some of these younger lawmakers who are demanding new leadership or fresh faces can say, hey, we have Hakeem Jeffries at least in the fifth spot so we can get behind Nancy Pelosi on the House floor. That was one argument you heard people make. But at the same time, if you look at the leadership ranks, now there are no women of color in leadership. You do have two members of the CBC. You do have women. You have someone from the Hispanic Congressional Caucus in Ben Ray Lujan. You even have a member of the LGBTQ community. But you do not have a minority woman. And that's a problem for Democrats and something you've heard them complain about. Being David Cicilline, who's head of this new committee, right? On, right. Right. Uh, on message and communication. Um, and that's significant, as you point out, no women of color in the leadership because so many women of color are the, among the new members of exactly. Congress. Exactly. And that's who gave them the majority. And you have this historic Congress coming in in the new year, and it's not necessarily reflected in the new leadership. Now, Nancy Pelosi did make a move on Friday to carve out a sort of leadership position lower down the ranks for Barbara Lee, her fellow Californian. Uh, is something Nancy Pelosi does when people say, hey, mm-hmm. I want to see the leadership table. She just makes the table a little bit bigger. It's something Democrats do. They've done over and over again. Of course, Pelosi is doing it again with Barbara Lee to, I think, assuage some of those exact concerns about not having a more minority woman at the table. Right, right. I mean, we also have to say, I think, and this is not, uh, I'm not siding with anybody here, but the fact is that very rarely do new members of Congress end up in the leadership in the first Exactly. In their first year, right? I mean, that's not unusual, right? No, not at all. Uh, what 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 I find really striking, not many people have reported on this, is um, the profound difference between the Democratic caucus and the Republican caucus when it comes to deciding their new leadership. We had all this drama on the Democratic side. The Republican thing was just like a rubber stamp, right? It was incredible given that they lost 40 seats Exactly. Now. They and got wiped out. Wiped and out they... and in California where Kevin McCarthy yes. is from. His right. own delegation was cut in half. So they got wiped out. Kevin McCarthy, who is in line to be speaker, he loses seven seats in Orange County in California. 
and uh, they're down now to 46, four, seven out of 53 congressional seats in California. Kevin McCarthy even lost a seat in Kern County, which is his home county, right? And and yet he was without any contest. He breezed, he breezed, breezed right back in. into it. I mean, granted, Jordan, Jim Jordan, a conservative, did launch a bid against him, but, you know, it wasn't a very serious bid. There weren't even calls for wholesale leadership change further down the ranks as well. So, you know, look, I think the Republicans... They know that they lost. Uh, they kept the Senate, and I don't. Th- I don't think that they just wanted to cause any more drama on their side. They had enough. They said, "We'll leave it to the Democrats. We don't want to be in the headlines. We're just going to keep our heads down." Well, our good friend Jonathan Martin has a, a great piece on the front page of the New York Times this morning. A headline is: "House GOP shrugs at losses, leaving some members baffled." And the point of the story is that here they got their butt wiped, right? And um, there's no talk about what happened. How no did we autopsy. lose the suburbs? It was supposed to be competitive, and yet we lost 40 seats. There was no autopsy, as you point out, like they've had in 2012. I think there- the reason is because they already know the reason, and that's President Trump. And no one wants to sit there and point the fingers at the sitting president and then have him come after them. So you have this interesting dynamic on the Hill where they, they know the reason why they lost all those seats, and they just don't want to speak it out it's loud. It's the worst of both worlds for them. They lose the seats. They know they lose them because of Donald Trump, particularly in the House. Right. He did help some in the Senate, did not help in the House with all this immigration hardliner stuff. And yet they can't say it, which just sets them up to lose even more It the does, next but what, what can they do in 2020? He's still going to be on the ballot, and he's still going to be the president at that point. So they, they can't really do much about it unless they come up with some sort of strategy which you saw a couple Republicans try to do, not successfully, but create their own pol- brand of politics and create their own name and distance themselves from the president when they ran. People like Will Hurd and Carlos Cabello tried to do that, um, some more successfully than others. Yeah, but- Carlos Cabello is no longer in, <laughs> but, I mean, he's, he lost his seat. Right. So. Mia Love gave no love, in the words of Trump. Um, she's someone who also tried to to speak out in certain areas against the president, but it's sometimes it's not enough in these districts. They want to see their representative stand up even more, but that's risky because then the president will come after you. So they are just in a very difficult position and will continue to do so in 2020. Right. Um, now, uh, this is the week. Friday is the deadline for the government shutting down. Um Donald Trump seems to want to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it going to shut down this week? Not this week. Because of the passing of George H.W. Bush, I think there is a lot of consensus on Capitol Hill on both sides right now that they're going to postpone this fight. They're going to do a CR, a continuing resolution for either one week or two week. That's something they're still deciding on. Oh, good. That'll take us uh, right to Christmas Day. Right before Christmas. Exactly. (laughs) What were your plans for Christmas, Melanie? (laughs) Don't worry. I don't even have a flight booked yet, so I'm keeping my options open. Or if I do book, I will book on Southwest because you can change your flights easily. All right. There you go. Yeah. No, but I mean, they were supposed to shut down this week, so now they kind of agreed. All right. In memory, in honor of President Bush, mm-hmm. we will not shut down the government this week. Right. We'll do it two weeks from now. We'll just do it a week or two from now. Exactly. Uh, is it likely two weeks from now? What does it depend on? Honestly, it, a lot depends on President Trump, what he is willing to accept, and Chuck Schumer. Keep in mind, they don't really need the House Democrats to go along. It all depends on what the Senate Democrats are willing to give and what President Trump is willing to sign. It's all going to come down to that. And Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are meeting with the president tomorrow at the White House. 
So I think we could get a better sense for where this is moving. The president said he wants $5 billion for the wall. Senate Democrats say $1.6 billion. Of course, that's a huge gap. One of the things being floated, however, is $5 billion spread out over two years. So A, is the president willing to sign something like that? And B, would enough Senate Democrats be willing to go along with that? I thought he wanted $25 billion for the wall. Initially, it was $25 billion, but for this funding round, he wants $5 billion. That's the line he has drawn in the sand. That's what House Democrats passed in their bill. But, of course, Senate Democrats only are willing to give $1.6 billion. Um, how many votes do you need in the Senate to pass this budget? Well, you need 60 votes in the Senate. 60? Right. They can't do it by reconciliation? Mm-mm. You would have already had to set that up in advance using the budget resolution. They haven't done that, so they need 60 votes, and they need the help of Democrats to get this thing through. So they right now they have 51, I guess, under the mm-hmm. old count, right? Uh, meaning, yeah, they'll need at least nine Democrats. Right. Which is pretty difficult. But if you if you start looking down the line, there are a few that you could see crossing over, like Manchin, who reportedly is also eating dinner or lunch today, I believe, with the president at the White House. Now, He's... I think the president's having lunch today with Ben Carson, actually. Oh, really? OK. Well, Joe Manchin was supposed to be there at some point this week, yeah. I believe. Um, He's someone who could possibly support wall funding. But it's going to be a lot depending on Chuck Schumer and if he releases some Democrats to go over and help get this thing through. And that's what a lot of House Democrats are worried about. They're very concerned that Chuck Schumer is going to cave on the wall, give the president maybe this $5 billion over two years, which they say is way too much. They don't even want a penny put I, towards this wall. No, I was going to say, I share that concern. I think Chuck Schumer is giving away much too much money. Why should he give Donald Trump $1.6 billion for a wall that Democrats don't want? I yeah. mean, why, it's, seriously, why give them one freaking penny for the wall? I think there's a lot of concern still. The last time the government did shut down, Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democrats got a lot of the blame and the backlash. And I think they're being a lot more careful this time around. That being said, they have a lot of things that they want to get. And I think that they think they can get something like a Mueller protection bill included in exchange for maybe this $5 billion over two years. So we're going to see tomorrow after this meeting you know, whether they come out of this Chuck and Nancy dinner like they did last year. Remember the Chinese chicken dinner claiming some sort of deal has been struck or not. Right. Um, back, back to the Mueller protection bill. This is something that Jeff Flake and Chris Coons, uh, Delaware, Arizona, have put the Republican Democrat put together. Uh, there are other senators supporting it as well. Uh, and Mitch McConnell so far has just refused to bring it up even to a vote. Right. Right. Repeatedly. Uh, and is Flake still um, refusing to vote for any Senate, uh, re- I mean, yeah. any judicial nominees? He is, which is very problematic given that a lot of these nominations need to be broke by a tie from Pence. You saw with Farr just last week. Uh, so they have a, a real situation that they need to defuse here. And that is one way to do that by allowing this vote to come up or by putting it on the spending bill. And look, it's not just Flake that supports this on the Republican side. The chairman, Chuck Grassley, supported it. It got through the Judiciary Committee with four Republican votes. There is support there, but Mitch McConnell is very nervous about having to put the rest of his conference on the spot, take this vote on the record, and he just doesn't want to have to do that for his members. Uh, isn't he afraid that if he put it up for a vote, it would pass? That's the other concern, is it could very well and probably would pass. Which gets him in a tough place with Donald Trump. Exactly. And again, again, they're afraid of Donald Trump. They're afraid of their own shadow. Exactly. 
Um, okay, so we are um, three weeks from the end of the twenty of the. I'm sorry, the fifteenth. What the, what is this? The one hundred and fifteenth Congress, mm-hmm. correct? Okay. Um, what can we know? What do we know now about the record of the one hundred and fifteenth Congress? Paul Ryan, um, at the end of last week, said, "You know, history is going to." Say this is one of the most effective Congresses yeah, ever. Yeah, they technically have passed the most bills, but when you start to look at what those bills are, a lot of post-naming offices, a lot of small bills, not a whole lot, especially when you look at the well, fact the that Well, the House passed unified. a lot of bills, but they didn't get go anywhere, right? Right, right. That's exactly right. And when you look at the fact that it was Republican-controlled Washington, you would expect a whole lot more to get done. And really, their biggest accomplishment was the GOP tax law, which wasn't that popular on the campaign drill. And in fact, may have hurt them in some districts, especially in those salt states like California, New Jersey, New York. It, it definitely hurt them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but other than seriously, other than that. So let's talk about not just the House. The Republicans had for the last two years, the White House, the Senate and the, and the House. Right. What did they accomplish? Not a whole lot. Besides that, they the didn't they didn't get infrastructure. They weren't able to repeal replace healthcare. Didn't even try with infrastructure. Right. That's right. Right. Uh, they weren't able to repeal and replace the uh, Obamacare. Uh, they did get some stuff done on opioids. They did pass a package of opioid bills, but still far short of what they said they were going to do. They haven't done much on drug pricing, which was another campaign promise that President Trump made in 2016 that did not get fulfilled. Something Democrats want to work on, possibly with him next year. But yeah, there's a lot left on the list that no have not Im- been checked off. No immigration no reform. No immigration reform. Nothing on DACA. No. Nothing really on the wall n- either. No prison reform, sentencing reform, judicial reform. Right. All that's of something that else they've talked about, about possibly right. getting du- done in the lame duck. But at this point, what, looking at the now? schedule. Between now and the end of the year? Right. No. Especially when they're trying to deal with the shutdown. Doesn't right. look like it's going to happen. So I mean, it'll 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 probably end up as one of the least effective, least productive sessions of Congress ever. Although I will say, just wait till next year when it's nothing but gridlock and you have Senate Senate in control of Republican hands and then the House in Democratic hands. So it could get worse next year. Uh, it could. Uh, it could also be. Here I am, the eternal optimist, that with both parties looking at 2020, they both know. And the president looking at 2020, uh, all three fact forces, I think, recognize they're going to have something. They have to have something that they can say they've accomplished. Especially going into for 2020. House Democrats. Nancy Pelosi knows they can't just investigate the president. They, they, they can't run on the, just the fact that they've investigated the Trump administration. They need to show that they can legislate. They need to have some accomplishments but at the same time, you're going to see reluctance, especially for some of these 2020 contenders in the Senate, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. They're going to be reluctant to hand victories to the president himself. So I think that's a tug you're going to see next year and the year after that is, yeah, we want to do infrastructure because we want to be able to say the Democrats did it. But then Trump gets to claim victory and that he checked off a major campaign promise as well. So have you done a count of how many senators are running for president? Oh, there's too many to count. I can just count on like two hands how many we are probably. We only have about running. a minute left. So. Oh, I'm right. sorry. Yeah. I don't think I'm we're going to have time to list them. <laughs> yeah, we don't. <laughs> well, at least two of them over the weekend said that they're going to make a decision over the holidays, Sherrod Brown and Kamala Harris. Yes. So hopefully we'll be able to add two more to the official list. Yeah, but 
um, you know, but you add to that list people who are going to be thinking about it over the weekend. Dozens. Including Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Cory Gillibrand. Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand. Basically, the entire Senate is running for 2020 on the Dem side. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't know anybody who has stood up to say, there's no way, no how. I, I would think run. that's the number we should start counting is who is not yeah, running in the Senate Dems. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they're in session this week, except uh, that's m- m- most of this week will be tied up around in the services honoring uh, former right. President George H.W. Bush. And then next week, and are they scheduled at any point definitely to go home? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Again, I think you're smart to <laughs> make your reservation Southwest, Southwest yes. so you have a lot of flexibility for changing your flights. Thanks, Melanie. It's always good to see you. Happy Thanks holidays, for me. right? Okay, yes. maybe we'll see you before the end of the year, maybe not. Melanie Zanona at the Hill. It's thehill.com. And when we come back, what's up the latest? What does this all mean with Michael Cohen and the Russian investigation? Max Bergman from the Center for American Progress joins us. We'll be right this back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. America prepares to say farewell to President George H.W. Bush. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Monday, December 3rd. Hello, hello, hello. Good to see you today. It is The Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Bringing you the news of the day. Uh, such as it is, what's happening here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe since the last time we were together. Uh, Jason Dick here, uh, filling in on Friday. Um, But I hope you had a great weekend and are ready to jump into the news of the day. Thank you so much for joining us on on many fronts, online, on the radio, and on television. Uh, We want to catch up particularly this first half hour here with on the Latest on the Russian front, Michael Cohen's guilty plea, Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone. Uh, lots happening on that front. Uh, Max Bergman follows it all as a senior fellow over at the Center for American Progress and joins us in studio. Hi, Max. It's good to see you. Hi, good to see you. Uh, yeah, it was things were popping last week yeah. right, on many fronts. Yeah, and, that was sort of the week that we were expecting to happen after the election. There was after, sort of a delay, right? And suddenly last yeah. week it just came uh, rapid fire. Yeah, and I think we connected uh, a lot of dots last week, which we will uh, get into with your help as well. Um, whether you're uh, online on radio or on television, send us your comments on Twitter. At BP Show again 
Oh, no. He's starting to tweet. So get in there. Get in there because Donald Trump's running competition now. <laughs> uh, but you're, there's room for you on Twitter, He's at up. BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll get right into the latest on all the Russian investigation. But first, Peter's got this the big headlines. The full court press. I'll, I'll do this really quickly so I can get back to my executive time, Bill. Uh, oh, yeah, so that please. I can check on yeah. tweets. Okay, so you talked earlier about President H. George H.W. Bush, who passed away over the weekend. He left behind... Uh, scores of kids and grandkids, but one other person he left behind, or one other seventeen grandkids. Yeah, yeah. One other, uh, one other name you might remember that he left behind is Sully. Sully. Bush. Yes. You might not know who we're talking about. That was I the do. service dog that helped George H. W. Bush, who accompanied his casket and will accompany his casket here to Washington D.C. He's a highly trained service dog. So what happens to Sully now? He is going to go back into service, and he's going to help other veterans, and will be working out at uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Oh, that's great. Good yeah. for Sully. Yeah. His, uh, the George H.W. Bush spokesperson, Jim McGrath, tweeted out a photo of uh, the casket and Sully right in front of it, doing his job one more time with a caption that just said, Mission Complete. Mm. So uh, Sully is off the job now, but he's going to find a new job very soon. Bill, do you feel like you are metabolically healthy? Yes, I'm one of the most. I'm probably <laughs> the most metabol meta metabolically. metabolically healthy people in the country, even I, if I can't pronounce it. I had a feeling you would say that. So, what is metabolic health? Doctors use the these, hell. I don't know. Use these criteria: blood glucose, triglycerides, high density lipoprotein, cholesterol, blood pressure, and waist circumference. So if you take a look at all those things to see if you were healthy in those categories. I was with you until you got to the last one. Yeah. How many Americans are metabolically healthy? Oh, 10%. Very close. 12%. Only 12% of us are considered to be metabolically healthy. Then we just need to get a new new list. A new That's test, right. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's yeah. how we fix this. <laughs> and by the way, if you were at the Daytona Beach International Airport <laughs> on Friday afternoon, you were evacuated because there was a bomb scare. There was a suspicious package that was making a ticking noise after they evacuated. They went up. They checked it out. They got into it. And it turns out the ticking noise was being made by an alarm clock. An electric toothbrush. There was an electric oh, toothbrush God. in there that was nearly out of batteries and kept making a clicking sound as it was trying to do its thing. A lot Where of passengers was this? in Daytona Beach. Don't, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they X-ray show it was a toothbrush? Well, it was a... just sort of. Yeah, it was on the uh, baggage carousel. They just heard oh, it. And everybody yeah. freaked out. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. You were looking for collusion. We found it thanks to Michael Cohen, who says, yeah, what do you mean? The whole time Donald Trump was running for president, he was also trying to make a deal with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Hello, everybody. On a Monday, December 3rd, great to see you today. The Bill Press Show. Here we are uh, with all of you coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, but joining you everywhere in this great land of ours, online, on the radio, and on television. On television, coast-to-coast, coast, on Free Speech TV, on the radio in Chicago, in the greater Chicago area, on WCPT, pardon me, and online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com, slash The Bill Press Show. 
Uh, lots and lots to talk about today. Max Bergman is in studio with us, senior fellow from the Center for American Progress. Uh, and, of course, we, we start the hour just, again, reflecting on the passing of former President George H.W. Bush, um, a man um, whom, we, even if we didn't always agree with, we could uh, uh, respect and admire, as I did very, very much, for his service to this country and for the dignity that he brought to the office of the presidency of the United States. What a contrast with a man who is there today. Um, you know, Max, uh, Peter, I heard uh, there was a a code word that the family had agreed to uh, that they would put out when the president passed uh, to let every immediate family, friends and family know without, you know, starting a whole news cycle. Mm -hmm. And it was the word CAVU, C-A-V-U. I've never been a pilot, so I didn't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. But CAVU, for those who are a pilot, means sealing Ceiling and visibility unlimited. Hmm. When you think about it, huh? It's just um, that's cool. Very yeah. powerful, full of meaning. And that word went out, and when it went out, everybody knew that the former president had passed at the age of ninety-four. Uh, uh, there's so many, so many mem- people with memories of of uh, George H. W. Bush. I have my own. Um, the funniest I saw, you know, he was a man of great daring. I mean, yeah. among other things. When was the last time he jumped out of a plane? I mean, he was like almost 90, I think, the yeah. last time. Um, but he was at Camp David when he was president, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, then just movie star, was visiting at Camp David. Uh, and so President Bush said, there was snow, snow had fallen, it was mm-hmm. snow on the ground. And the president said, let's take a ride in this toboggan. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a picture of it uh, with uh, Jake Tapper talked to uh, Schwarzenegger yesterday about it, where the president and Arnold Schwarzenegger on this toboggan going like a bat out of hell down this hill and totally lost control of it and crashed into the first lady who was at the bottom of the hill and broke her leg. Uh, these were pretty wild days, you know, but the, uh, he 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 was had a very daredevil kind of streak in him. Yeah, and I think his his. Uh, public persona oftentimes probably didn't match his personal persona. You know, we think politicians, we want them to be uh, uh, so authentic. And sometimes the most authentic politicians are the ones that struggle with being, with letting their true personal selves show publicly. And I think he was a man actually of tremendous wit, but everyone sort of thought of him as being really stuffy and, uh, and, and, and not really having the sort of warm persona that I think in all these stories that we're hearing... Uh, really reflect someone that was really warm, really witty, really daring. Had a lot of cur- had tremendous courage. Yet that wasn't the reputation when he was in no, political life. Right, not at all. But you know, um, uh, again, uh, I thought that every tribute to President Bush, um, if you read between the lines, right, it was also a critique of the current president yeah. because everything, all the words used to describe him. Dignity, humility, respect, but just the opposite of what we think of when we think of Donald Trump. Um, and and we played this clip earlier, but Bill Clinton yesterday read, you know, there's this tradition, the outgoing president leaves a note in the drawer, mm-hmm. top drawer of the Oval Office desk to the incoming president. So when, when he writes that president that note, he's still president. 
when the next guy finds mm-hmm. the note, he's now the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B- Bill Clinton read the note that part of the note that George W. Bush, H. W. Bush, left for him. I wish you great happiness here. There will be tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. And he ended by saying, I'm rooting for you. Uh, Contrast, Donald Trump said Barack Obama has committed treason and should be locked up. Uh, You know, that says it all. Yeah. I'm concerned, right, in terms of the two of them. All right, so um, we've we've seen Donald Trump saying over and over again, during the campaign, 2016, here's a little montage of Donald Trump saying, what do you mean I'm saying nice things about Vladimir Putin because I have some business deals in Russia? I don't have any business deals in Russia. You said you have no investments in Russia, but do you owe any money to Russian individuals and institutions? No. Will I sell condos to Russians on occasion? Probably. I mean, I do that. I have a lot of condos. I don't have any deals with Russia. I had Miss Universe there a couple of years ago. Other than that, no. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. I had the Miss Universe pageant, which I owned for quite a while. I had it in Moscow a long time ago. Uh, But other than that, I have nothing to do with Russia. Michael Cohen says that's a big fat lie. Yeah. And, you know, I think what we see there is the president was actively, as he was saying, that trying to cut deals in Russia. And I think one of the more significant things that came out of the of the Cohen uh, plea and the Cohen statements is that he wasn't simply trying to do a deal with a Russian, another Russian businessman or a Russian bank. He was actively going to the Kremlin, to the Russian government, to the Russian president, to the Russians uh, chief right hand man, Dmitry Peskov who is uh, often seen as the architect, actually, of the foreign interference campaign in our 2016 election. And that's who he was trying to cut a deal with. So this isn't something, oh, there's some business deal on the side, and mm. you know maybe he mm-hmm. you know, was sort of not really aware. No, this was, they were going directly to the Kremlin as he was saying all of that, as he was running uh, for president. And it makes you kind of look back on the 20, uh, 2016 primary, which actually was in 2015, uh, the Republican primary, where you had 16 Republican candidates. All The other 15 all had a very hawkish line on Russia because that's been the Republican foreign policy tradition yes, since yes, the end of right. the Cold War to be hawks on Russia. And then here was Donald Trump saying very positive things about Putin advocating a soft on Russia policy while he's trying to monetize his position, essentially, trying to get a deal uh, with with the Kremlin. Uh, and so you have to look at that and say, the man is not only uh, conflicted, he's compromised by these very dealings. Um, and so it also exposes everything the president has been saying has effectively been uh, duplicitous, has been a lie. Uh, and so anything he says on the Russia investigation, I think now can be totally dismissed. I think you could say that before, but now it's it's become official. We know he's been lying. We know he's uh, trying to cover up what was sort of a vast uh, effort to uh, engage with the Russians during the 2016 election. Right. I mean, if, if nothing else, this now clears up the mystery, which you alluded to, that all of us were wondering, why is Donald Trump saying all these nice things about Vladimir Putin? Yeah. Now we know why, right? Yeah. Because he didn't want to alienate Putin in any way because he was hoping to get this hotel deal out of Putin, 
which we might add included the sweetener of a $50 million penthouse for Vladimir Putin on top of the Trump Tower right. in Moscow. And, you know, you look at this, you look at Trump during the during the primary, during his sort of uh, emergence into political life. And he's really been consistent only about three issues. He's been anti-trade, anti-immigration and pro-Russia. And one of those just doesn't have any sort of political constituency, doesn't really make sense for something for Donald Trump. That's the one foreign policy issue he feels incredibly strongly about and is incredibly consistent about. And it makes you wonder, someone who in his personal behavior and his business behavior looks like he's eminently compromisable or, or potentially compromised through uh, all sorts of actions. That's the one issue, a foreign policy issue where he hasn't budged, hasn't changed in his entire time uh, since running for president and since as president. Um, that, that It's a point that was made by Congressman Jerry Nadler, the incoming chair of judiciary, uh, which I think is the big takeaway from Michael Cohen's testimony. Okay, we know Donald Trump lied about this, and we knew, and we know the Russians knew he was lying to the American people about it at this time. Yeah. What does that mean? Here's Jerry Nadler. The fact that he that he was lying to the American people about doing business in Russia, uh, and that the Kremlin knew he was lying, gave the Kremlin a hold over him. And uh, one question we have now is: Does the Kremlin still have holds over him because of other lies that they know about? He's dead on. You know, if I, when I was working in government, I had a top secret security clearance. Uh, in filling out and getting that clearance, I had to fill out, you know, all my uh, financial records, foreigners that I had, uh, was in contact with. Uh, Donald Trump, if he w would not get a, a security clearance, you know, he, he was, <laughs> and he, the only reason why he has one is because he got elected to be president. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... <laughs> He he sort of fits the definition of someone that our security services would be immensely nervous about giving any sort of access to because he's compromised or potentially compromised because a foreign government knows things about him that could potentially do damage to him. Now, often sometimes, you know, when a foreign power finds out someone in government is, let's say, an alcoholic or has had an affair, that's leverage they can use over him. Well, with Donald Trump, it, they have now we know the Russians knew about his secret business dealings, not just with Russian businessmen, but with the Kremlin itself. But but also the Kremlin was part of the cover up. The Kremlin lied on his behalf to say, no, there's no there was no mm -hmm. uh, outreach. We didn't respond. There was nothing, nothing that took place. They were lying on behalf of Donald Trump. And I think that is uh, <coughs> that right there is incredibly uh, uh, dangerous for U.S. national security. That to have a president in which a hostile foreign power, this is a hostile foreign power, yeah, has leverage right, over him. Right. Now, to me, the significance of this was that it really does, I think, connect the dots, if you will, between the New York attorney investigation of Michael Cohen and Robert Mueller's investigation yeah. of Donald Trump. Doesn't it? Yes. I mean... Yes, you know, Mike, there's like no daylight between we, them. We, we've are, sort of forgotten that the president of the United States has already been named as an unindicted co-conspirator in, in an election-related crime uh, when Michael Cohen uh, um, pled guilty to paying off a porn, a porn star on behalf of Donald Trump uh, right before the election. That was earlier. Um, in August. In August, yeah. right. 
And so what this guilty dem- plea. And so that wasn't with Robert Mueller. That was with the Southern District of New York. Right. But now what we see is that Michael Cohen is cooperating not just with the Southern District of New York, but is cooperating with the the State Attorney General of New York, which is investigating uh, the Trump Foundation for allegedly being a fraudulent organization that was basically used for Trump to kind of uh, as a slush fund for Donald Trump. Uh, and th- more importantly, this was part of the Mueller investigation. So Michael Cohen is now cooperating with three distinct criminal investigations into Trump and the Trump organization. Right. Isn't there one word that sort of sums it all up that we heard from um, from what, what we heard from Michael Cohen, which is collusion? Yes. And uh, I know, mean, if you need any evidence of collusion, I mean, here it is. Right? And, and I think the other the other big uh, thing that was revealed last week, which further demonstrates the collusion. So we we know with this, Donald Trump was actively interacting with the Kremlin during the election in order to further his financial interests. So what we don't know what which wasn't quite revealed is what was the Kremlin getting in return for this. Uh, Mueller didn't reveal that, but we can speculate. But the other thing that was revealed was for a long time there had been a ton of speculation from people like me and others that, hey, the, the coordination over WikiLeaks, how did Roger Stone know that John Podesta's well, emails were going to be released? I wanted to get into that, yeah. so I'm glad you went yeah. there. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so how did they know that that was going to be released? How did Roger Stone know that was going to be released before John Podesta knew? And, uh, jo- and, Ro- and Roger Stone did tweet out, uh, John Podesta is going to get his comeuppance or something yeah, like his that. Yeah, time in the barrel. And yeah. John Podesta at the time didn't know what he was talking about because he didn't know he had been hacked. And so what we learned this week, or last week, was when Jerome Cor- Corsi uh, made public the uh, plea agreement that he refused to sign that was given to him by the Mueller lawyers, that that directly points to collusion. It says that Roger Stone, who is in t- frequent contact with Donald Trump and the senior members of the Trump campaign, directed Corsi to get in touch with WikiLeaks, who they knew was a Russian front. So Mueller has evidence to point that the Trump campaign knew that WikiLeaks was a Russian front to find out more information about when what they were going to do with the stolen materials. That is collusion. We don't know. We no longer have to sort of speculate whether Mueller is going to go after collusion. We know Mueller is going to go after collusion because it's in that draft plea agreement that he provided to Corsi. Uh, but Roger Stone yesterday denies, of course, that he ever talked to um, Julian Assange uh, of WikiLeaks. You're saying you never spoke to Julian Assange, never contacted WikiLeaks, never spoke about any of that to President Trump? That that is absolutely correct. I turned over one direct message to the House Intelligence Committee between the flack for WikiLeaks and I. All right, so... You know, (laughs) he doesn't deny that maybe that he told Corsi to get in touch with WikiLeaks, but he does deny that he ever told the Trump campaign anything about this. Yeah, so Roger Stone's story on this in the past effectively two years has evolved again and again and again. And so now, you know, that latest statement, I think it's just frankly not credible. We know from, and we know that Mueller likely has the communications to pinpoint that Roger Stone was in frequent communication with Donald Trump. We know that Roger Stone himself has said he was in frequent communication with Donald he Trump. He said that if there were, he got a call from an unblocked number in the middle of the night, he always answered it because he knew who was calling. Right. And we know that this that Roger Stone plays in this game. He plays. He's a uh, prof- likes to market himself as a professional political dirty trickster. Right. And what a the ultimate professional dirty dirty trick 
that, you know, how could you top Watergate? It's not just breaking <laughs> into the DNC. It's using the Russians to break into the DNC and to and to your political opponent. So I think, you know, I think it's hard to take anything Roger Stone says with any credibility, given uh, the lies in the past. But I think what's clear is Stone was was actively working to get in touch with WikiLeaks, got in touch with WikiLeaks through through, through, through in, Corsi, Corsi and other intermediaries, and then pass that information on. Now, this is uh, you know aiding and abetting effectively what was what Mueller has identified a Russian conspiracy against the United States, a cyber crime, and Mueller is likely has all the goods, has the evidence to point to that. Um, and I think one of the things that I think we can now uh, uh, sort of safely say is that we know where this investigation is headed. Before, there was a lot of speculation that, is this really going to be about Trump? Maybe this will just be, be about obstruction of justice or you know a perjury trap. No, I think we can now say that Mueller is looking to identify whether Trump himself actively was involved in this Russian conspiracy. That's where this investigation ha- is headed. And we, we should not, you know, the amount of evidence that Mueller has that we don't know anything about, we're constantly surprised by him. Uh, I don't think we should be surprised going forward with more shocking revelations that come out of Mueller. We should, in fact, expect to be shocked going well, forward. Well, that's huge what you just said, that this investigation, no matter all these attempts on the part of Rudy Giuliani and others to say it's, it's all about these Russians or these people who were not involved in the campaign or not involved in Trump at all, but that it's, that's not the case. It really is focused more and more, not just on the people around Donald Trump, but on Donald Trump himself. Yeah. And this was clear from the people who have already been indicted and pled guilty or been convicted. When you have the national security advisor, the campaign chairman, the deputy campaign chairman, a foreign policy advisor, and the president's personal lawyer all uh, being pleading guilty or being uh, indicted, yeah. Uh, what that demonstrates is that, and if you're still going with the investigation, there's only really one person ahead uh, above all those people, and that's the president of the United States. Well, I would say there may be one person in between. That's Donald Trump Jr. Yes. So, um, what uh, what rela- uh, what relation does this any of this have to the famous meeting at Trump Tower, if any? So set up by Donald Trump Jr. So one of the things that's been interesting is you know we don't Mueller hasn't actually brought any criminal indictments related to the. We've, you know, learned about the Trump Tower meeting because Donald Trump Jr. decided after the New York Times got the emails to just make it public. Now, the Trump Tower meeting in all likelihood was a violation of federal election law. Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner took that meeting with the in hope that they were going to get something of value from a foreign country. Dirt really, on Hillary. Dirt on Hillary related yeah. to the election. That, sh- that is potentially a violation of, of the law. Now... Donald Trump Jr., we know himself, thinks that he's going to be uh, indicted. He's, he's, that's sort of word that's come out from multiple rep- reporting. The other thing that I think has a lot of people in Trump world worried is that during the past two years, there has been a quote-unquote investigation in the House Intelligence Committee in which Devin Nunes and other House Republicans were effectively encouraging Republic, uh, uh, Trump associates not to say anything revealing. And you have to wonder now that Mueller, ha- now that Michael Cohen has pled guilty to lying to Congress, and when Adam Schiff becomes head of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, whether he's going to provide all those transcripts, which Devin Nunes has refused to do, to Robert Mueller, whether there's going to be a lot of evidence of those uh, people who mm. uh, appeared before Congress, Mm-mm. thinking, "Hey, this is a softball 
Um, I have the Republicans in my corner. I can basically lie with impunity here because they're not going to do anything. And now you know that retroactively, Robert Mueller can go and charge you. And I think that could lead to a lot of additional charges, but also potentially a lot of additional cooperation Mm -hmm. from people who came to testify who weren't uh, forthcoming. There was a report last week in the by the Guardian that Paul Manafort, of course, we should also talk about the yeah. fact that the plea deal with Manafort yeah. fell apart, right? Yeah. Because Manafort cannot, cannot, like Donald Trump, can't stop lying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but so maybe a comment on both. I started as I started to point out the Guardian reported that Manafort himself had actually met with Julian Assange, and maybe even with the Ecuadorian. Uh, ambassador, both parties denied it. What do we take from that? So, you know, this story sort of hit Washington and you saw the Washington press corps sort of not really able to substantiate it. (laughs) And therefore uh, viewing it in sort of a dubious way, the story has sort of fallen off the headlines. I don't really think that's justified. I think it makes perfect sense why The Guardian is the one who broke the story. The Guardian's broken a lot of stories about WikiLeaks, about the Ecuadorian embassy. And it also, they also have, so we, they clearly have a lot Not of sources. mentioned Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden. <laughs> and they clearly have a lot of sources within the Ecuadorian government who's now sick of Julian Assange and essentially wants him out I would, of their embassy. I think so. Yeah. yeah he's How been, long have they put up with him I there? I think in more than five years yeah, at this the guy point. who came for dinner and never left. Never right? left. <laughs> it's a terrible house guest. Uh, and then they also, the UK, they also have great sources, The Guardian, with the UK intelligence. And this wouldn't be US intel sort of on the ground in London watching the embassy, it would be UK intelligence. And we know from a previous Guardian story all the way back to April 2017, where they said that the GCHQ, this is the UK National Security Agency, picked up on meetings and contacts between Trump associates and the Kremlin, and Kremlin associates, and they found this so Uh, troublesome that the head of GCHQ in the summer of 2016 went straight to John Brennan, wasn't going to sort of widely share this through normal intelligence sharing channels, but directly to John Brennan. Now, one potential explanation is that this was about Paul Manafort and the two stories sort of line up very well. And how could in, in the indictment or in the draft plea agreement with Corsi, this is a little confusing, but it says that the, it basically associates WikiLeaks with the Russian government, which implies that the Trump campaign knew that the WikiLeaks was a front for the Russian government. Well, how did they know that? How does Mueller have evidence of that? Well, perhaps he has evidence that Paul Manafort was was actively meeting with Julian Assange and was conveying that to the campaign. I think that story is highly credible and one that we're probably going to come back to. But on Paul Manafort in general, Paul Manafort, uh, you know, if you wanted to run a campaign of collusion with the Russians, you'd probably want someone who's done it before. And Paul Manafort in 2008, he helped run the campaign of Viktor Yanukovych, the, the pro-Kremlin right. leader of Ukraine, uh, to, to take back power and was his right-hand man. And you know who Paul Manafort's right-hand man was? A guy who was uh, now alleged by Mueller to be a member of Russian intelligence. So that fact that Paul Manafort was so central to this campaign and was is constantly double-dealing, I think tells you sort of everything about the guy um, and in, in that what's clear is that Paul Manafort has been sort of is incredibly shady and was is desperate to get out of the vice grip that Paul Mueller, that Robert Mueller has him under. And so was double dealing with the Mueller campaign and with and with uh, the Trump Trump. And uh, he's probably team. willing to do so because he's counting on a pardon. 
and that in when Trump Trump's public comments uh, also sort of dangled out a pardon. And so what this then points to. Yeah. Here, in fact, here's yeah. a president where in a, privately with the New York Post, he said, why would I take it off the table? Before he left for Argentina, he reiterated this publicly to reporters on the South Lawn. The question was asked to me by the New York Post, and I said, no, I have not offered any pardons. And I think they asked, or whatever, would you? I said, I'm not taking anything off the table. When you suggest that you would, I know we're out of time here, but just one quick question. You suggest that you would pardon a key witness in a criminal investigation of yourself? Yeah. Isn't that obstruction of justice? I would think so. By definition? But what it also is is someone who's acting guilty. You know, why is Trump acting guilty unless he's not (laughs) guilty? And what the Manafort (laughs) double dealing exposes in all the joint defense agreements and all the lying and all the, it is a vast cover up. That there is a vast cover up. So we learned last week of collusion and a vast cover up. And why is Trump acting guilty? I think the most logical explanation is because he's guilty. Yeah. Enough said. Absolutely. Right. Uh, if it was not wrong, why was he lying about it? Yeah. Right? Exactly. Hey, Max, great to see you. Thanks for your good Thanks, work. Bill. Thanks for bringing us up to date here. Uh, we follow Max and all of our good friends over at the center at AmericanProgress.org. Uh, a big week for Congress. Uh, most of it's centered around the memorial services for former President George H.W. Bush, but they still have some other issues to deal with and maybe even some more leadership battles. Matt Fuller covers the Congress for HuffPost. Up next here on The Bill Press Show, a quick break, and we'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And here we go, Monday, December 3rd. Winding, uh, we're winding up The Bill Press Show for this Monday from our studio on Capitol Hill. Reaching out to you coast to coast, online, on the radio, and on television, and brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union. Under President Jim Hoffa, we all live better because of their good work. Check out their website at teamster.org. Join me in welcoming uh, to the to the uh, program, to our studio, Matt Fuller, covers the Congress for HuffPost. Hello, Matt. Good, good to see you. Good to see you. Everything good? Everything's good. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things before we jump into it, uh, just because I'm so excited about this. I mentioned earlier in the show, I just want everybody, whether you were with us the last hour or not, to know about the best movie of the year. So excited about seeing this movie over the weekend called Green Book. Have you heard about it or seen it? Uh, I've seen something about it. I, I didn't see it. I did see a movie this weekend, though, but not Green Book. Uh, Matt yes. saw Wreck-It Ralph 2. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2. <laughs> no, if only. Go ahead, Green oh. Book. Yeah. I, saw, I saw Widows, but... Oh, Widows. And? Oh, it was great. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Not as good as Green Book. I haven't okay. seen Widows, but it's, Green Book is a great, great story about uh, an African-American concert jazz pianist, jazz, yeah, pianist, uh, with head of this little trio, traveling through the South in the 50s and 60s uh, with its driver, a, a great uh, uh, actor, but uh, Peter, you mentioned uh, Mahershala Ali plays the yeah. pianist, and Vigo Mortensen is Viggo the driver. Mortensen. Two great actors. Two great actors, and um, uh, they're driving through the South, and they have to, because he's the, the, the Italian, white Italian guy is driving this black pianist, they have to follow the Green Book as to where they can eat and where they can oh. stay. It's a f- f- true story. Uh, fascinating story. Beautifully, beautifully done. And very funny, too, and very powerful, very moving. 
Uh, anyhow, got to tell you about Green Book, Green Book. When it comes to any city near you, run out and see it. It's a it's a great feel-good movie. Makes you proud of how far we've come since those days. Um, and one other little, this is the holiday season. So I just want you to know that uh, in the press family, we're prepared for uh, for Christmas. Um, Wait, did you put your tree up this weekend? No, we don't do a tree because we have two trees in on the West Coast. Our two kids oh. both have trees, so we have our Christmas tree with them. We oh, I see. Okay. Them. But right, any, right, at any right. rate, that's just too much information. <laughs> TMI. <laughs> uh, but so one of our one of our uh, grand our, one of our grandsons got up uh, Saturday morning and said, "Oh, Dad, I got to make my Christmas list today." <laughs> And he wrote out his Christmas list, and our son Mark sent us a copy of the Christmas list. And, and he very, wants a copy of your new book. No, but close. <laughs> At the very top of the Christmas list is, please make Trump go. <laughs> oh, that that's was his, great. his list to Santa Claus. That's the first thing he wants. Jay, what do we got that from? Did we bring him up right or not? <laughs> yeah, you've done a good job. Isn't though. that funny? Yeah. You've done a Please good job. make Trump go. So the next one was uh, Nintendo Switch, though. So right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. If I can't have Trump go, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take Fortnite. Uh, <laughs> all right, Matt. So all the uh, all the storm and drung or whatever at the at the House over the Democratic leadership is all done. Nancy Pelosi will be the next speaker. Not quite done, uh, but uh, it's certainly looking like she's the overwhelming favorite at this point. Um, I mean, a lot of this is... This is like, if, what if they gave a war and nobody came, right? It's a little a bit of that, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say that the the votes, you know, what they say, haven't really changed that much. There's been, I'd say, a, a pretty solid group of about 20 Democrats who still say they're not going to vote for Pelosi. Um, you know, she's got... In her mind, plenty of time to flip those remaining votes. We've got about a, a, almost exactly a month, actually, um, and you know, where she can lose, I think seventeen at this point. I think the majority yeah, will be two thirty-five. The third of January <coughs> is when yeah, right. the vote right the second, on the floor, that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so she can lose seventeen and still be elected speaker. Well, let's say there's about there's right now there's sixteen Democrats on this letter that they've had. Um, some of them are a little bit softer than others on this, uh, but I, I generally, at this point, I think their idea is really, let's just get Nancy Pelosi to say, I will retire, this will be my last term, some sort of exit strategy, and she's really not willing to do that at this point, uh, partly because, you know, it's, you sort of kneecap yourself. Oh, absolutely. You... She doesn't have to, and... Under, well, she, she, it, well. It, we don't know if she doesn't have to at this yeah, point, but uh, right. we, we do know that if she has to, she could... <laughs> Uh, and if, if, you know, if it came to that, I think she would have no problem uh, being, being speaker if she gave them some sort of, you know, backroom assurance that yeah. this will, in fact, be my last. My read is she'll get it even without doing that. Very possible. I mean, she certainly. What I thought was significant was that two years ago when uh, there was not all this drama about it and taking back the house and, and not such a clamor for new leadership. There were voices about that. And uh, Tim Ryan, in fact, mm -hmm. ran against so her. So a lot Ryan, of the same voices, yeah. Tim Ryan got 63 votes. Mm -hmm. So this year, with all the drama and all the controversy, the opposition got 32 votes. Yeah, 30, uh, so, 33 or 33 app, three ballots that were blank, basically. Yeah. So 30, we could call it Basically, they got half this time of what they got two years ago, yeah, which so, shows, if anything, that she got stronger, not weaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the one thing they would say is— Or they is, got weaker, not stronger. <laughs> is 2016 was kind of a tough election on House Democrats. Yeah. And there were a lot yeah. of people who 
you know that that race between Tim Ryan, no one ever really took it too seriously. That and that was a you know the a performative race. It was uh, that one race, and then that that was the only way to re- really register your discontent. And I think there was a lot of people who sort of said, you know, I, I just want to indicate that I'm not very happy with how you know they want to think six seats in 2016. Um, so I, a lot of that 63 number was was probably inflated at the time. Mm-hmm. What you're looking at now is still. A lot of the same Democrats that say the, the the twenty Democrats or so who, or let's say the, I think twelve or so who are um, on the letter who are who are incumbent Democrats, uh, those people have been sort of constant Nancy Pelosi detractors for years. A lot of them have never voted for her on the floor when they have the speaker vote, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that seems like a lot of those people are going to continue with that sort of trend. Um, you know, she's been leader for sixteen years. You're obviously going to make some enemies doing that. So a lot of that uh, opposition is just sort of, um, you know, what you'd expect. Right. And it really the question is these these incoming Democrats, these new freshmen, who a lot of them sort of were cagey, whether they're going to support Pelosi. A lot of them weren't. A lot of them were straight up, I'm not going to support Nancy Pelosi. We still haven't seen uh, the hardest line of those freshmen saying they're going to do anything but vote against Nancy Pelosi. So the question still is, how many of the incumbent Democrats who um, have indicated, you know, I don't like Nancy Pelosi will sort of take the fall a little bit for, you know, there's like Bill Foster is a guy who's in a D plus nine district. I don't think he ever campaigned on, you know, running against Nancy Pelosi. Is Bill Foster going to make someone like Abigail Spanberger uh, or Connor Lamb, these more vulnerable Democrats who are incoming freshmen into Congress, um, Mikey Sherrill, those people who made those promises, are they going to have to vote for Nancy Pelosi or vote present and sort of break their promise in that way? Or is it going to be the, you know, the Kurt Schraders and Bill Fosters and Tim Ryan, Seth Moulton, those those folks who end up, you know, taking one for the team a little bit? Right. Uh, with all the attention to the Democratic side, there hasn't been enough attention, I believe, uh, on the Republican side, which is a different story. Our friend Jonathan Martin, who, as we speak, is on the CNN right now on, on the, uh, the New Day CNN, talking about his story on the front page of the New York Times this morning. Headline, House GOP shrugs at losses, leaving some members baffled. He's making the point that they got wiped out. They lost right. 40 seats, and their election was automatic, even for Kevin McCarthy, who lost California. Yeah. And yet they just waltzed in, and there's been no... Soul searching. Soul searching. Yeah. No autopsy. No nothing. No explanation about how did we lose the suburbs. Yeah. You know what happened to us, right? We thought this was going to. Be, they were saying competitive until the very end. Yeah. Yeah. And I, got it wiped out. So, what are they doing? Are they just <coughs> living, living in denial? Yeah, I think they've been living in denial uh, for a long time. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that you know any any bad news on the campaign front was sort of dismissed as and a lot of i had i heard these quotes from guys who lost i remember dave bratt basically telling me you know the polls are wrong um i a, there's a a vein in the republican party that really believes in this fake news thing and when they hear bad poll numbers they think of it as fake news um so there was there were guys who saw a little bit of this coming but a 40 seat you know uh wave let's just use the word um i, I don't think that there's been you're right. There's not been a, 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 whole, a whole lot of soul searching here uh, after that, and particularly um, where there are real policy things that Republicans could look at. Um, certainly, if you look at where they lost, one of the big things, the big trends, obviously a lot in California, 
There were um, a few in Virginia. There was New Jersey. There was New York. Those are all areas with salt. The uh, state and local taxes, that Mm -hmm. deduction that they addressed in the tax bill. uh, I think a lot of voters, whether or not it actually hurt them or not, were kind of pissed off that, you know, these people um, did a tax bill and really did not give them much of a tax break or any tax break at all. And in those areas, particularly, let's just talk Orange County, right? A lot of those houses, uh, you're deducting a lot more than $10,000 on your state and local taxes. And I think those people felt like uh, Republicans didn't have their best interests at heart. And someone like Kevin McCarthy, who shapes that policy directly, I mean, this was a a, a policy choice. They could have chosen to to deduct more um, or kept the SALT deduction. At this point, you're spending $1.5 trillion anyway. Uh, what's another, you know, hundred, mm-hmm. couple hundred billion here or there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think a lot of those voters were uh, a little bit disillusioned with, you know, Republicans don't have my interests at heart right now, and that's where we saw a lot of those losses. All right. So then, uh, so the the final result in California is fifty three seats. Now Republicans hold seven. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's four or six. I'm sorry, forty seven six. Yeah. Um. Maybe 56, seven, 46, 7. I think it is 46, 7, I believe. Anyhow, it, but, the, you know, so with with that, <coughs> Paul Ryan was asked about this uh, at some, some forum on Friday. And he blasted California, basically indicating this was, he called it ballot harvesting, right? Mm-hmm. Massive fraud in California. Yeah. That's the only way Democrats want. I mean, really? First of all. We call it something different in California. We call it counting every vote. Or voting. <laughs> or voting. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, Not yeah. ballot harvesting. It's voting yeah. and counting every vote. So I know it's a very old-fashioned yeah, yeah. concept here and hard maybe for Paul Ryan to grasp. But that's the fallback position is blame it on voter fraud. Well, the, the amazing thing is we have – it seems like we have a real issue of voter fraud right now in, in North Carolina. In, yeah, but not and, in California, in, right? In North Carolina. Right, North Carolina, right. And and it's a Republican who, you know, surprise, was was the one who was maybe up to something here. And there's real issues and uh, real evidence that there was something going on here. What was going on? What were they doing? Oh, there there's all sorts of issues with these absentee ballots where uh, it looks like some of their workers were maybe going around to – some of the African-American neighborhoods and saying, um, oh, we're collecting absentee ballots. Oh, you don't need to fill that out. We'll take care of it or whatever. Either ripping it up or voting for, um, mm. you know, the mm. Republican, uh, Mark Harris, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you look at the primary, actually, this was one of the most interesting things that I saw was in the primary election, how many absentee ballots he received versus his, he, he took out a, uh, an incumbent Republican, Robert Pittenger. Uh, and I think, you know, I, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but it was something like in the absentee ballots, he got like 479 of the ballots and uh, Robert Pittenger got like 17. So the, the the idea is this is, you know, this has been going on. There's no way that someone oh, gets the right. overwhelming yeah. number of the, either yeah. throwing them out or, or you know, changing the, the votes again or adding the vote. So at, at this time, the Republican was declared the winner, right. but with this voter fraud... <clears throat> The whole quest, the whole outcome is in question. Right, has not Does been that, certified. So, are they going to have a, another election? I, I doubt that part. Um, the Republicans still argue that. Can they declare the Democrat the winner? No, they wouldn't do that, but um, without another election, <laughs> right? Um, it it just it's it's a really tough situation. This is working its way through the courts right now, uh, but you don't hear Republicans focusing on this. You certainly don't hear them talking about. It, but you hear Paul Ryan saying, you know. 
oh, I don't get this issue in California. Well, it's just the way that California ballots are, you know, as you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. they're counted, right? A lot of them people mail in, and that's just, it takes a long time to, to right. count those votes. Right. A lot of them are, are military votes yes. as well. right. So I, I mean, I, I just it's it's incredible to right to hear someone like Paul Ryan uh, take a line like Trump. That's just this kind of baseless voter fraud accusations. Meanwhile, we have actual voter fraud. It looks like in an, a real instance, and, and they're not addressing that at all on the part of a Republican right. member. But right. it is in right. the courts now. Somebody is looking at it. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, Paul Ryan also said that looking back on the uh, 115th Congress, that this is going to go down in history as one of the most productive members of Congress. We passed more bills than almost any other house Named in history. more post offices and <laughs> did more land management bills. And yeah, no, I mean, he, he had a couple things to say. It was, it was interesting to see him uh, looking back, you know, regrets. I have a few or really regrets. I have two. Uh, he, he wanted to tackle debt more and he wanted to do immigration, which is funny because it's like, well, you, those are both things you could have done. You know, as speaker, you had that power. He could have put the Dreamers <clears throat> up for a vote, right? Right. He Legislation that he, you know, comprehensive has, has single that he he supports, right? Um, certainly didn't do that. Uh, um, the but, debt, you know, he what he became famous on exploded under him. I think the the, the deficit has, uh, in I think it's basically doubled since he took over in, uh, like. Was it October 2015? Yeah, and he passed a tax bill which added 1.5 trillion. Right. So there's been no, you know, the, the the idea that he's been a fiscal conservative or has addressed anything meaningful in debt is ridiculous. It's, it's in fact the opposite that he's exploded debt. Um, and and part of that, he, you know, he, one the other time he sort of looked back at his speakership, he was talking about um, one of the things he was so proud of was that he he they really plussed up the military, and this is the thing that. Uh, a trend I've seen in Congress, uh, you know, the entire time I've been here is that they just keep on adding to more money to the military. Well, the Pentagon's never been through an audit. Uh, th- there's no real accounting for this money. And we're talking over $700 billion a year, right? And it's it's automatic. It's not just, the, you know, the plus up what, what the military uh, recommends uh, or, or, no, or, or asks right. for. They get it more than that, and right? That's, that's just how it's these parochial interests in, in Congress work. And Every dollar you add for military, Democrats are saying, well, you know, wait a minute. We've had a sort of agreement here where if you're going to get a dollar there, we want a dollar here. And they've actually broken the dollar for dollar thing here. But it certainly then adds to the domestic side. And then on top of that, you have, um, you know, the tax bills, right? So you're bringing in less revenue. So obviously, you know, debt and deficits are going to increase. And they haven't done anything meaningful to address that because it's painful to do that. I mean, I, I gave a talk in San Francisco about a week ago to a, a, a group of a businessmen, and the a point that I made is that, uh, maybe you can correct me, that I don't know of any deficit hawk, outspoken certainly deficit hawk, in the United States Congress today. And there used to be many of them, but like Bob Corker was number yeah. one. But, you know, he yeah, totally there's, folded. There's a few guys leaving. who <coughs> would sort of fall. Jim Cooper... Would be one. I would say Justin Amash, uh, who's who I, I think might leave the Republican Party soon, uh, is sort of a libertarian. Thomas Massey a little bit, but uh, both guys who voted for tax cuts. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's tough to say. Some of them may voice it, but I mean, right. in terms of their votes, Jim Cooper is a Democrat who you know I think is, and he's actually on the <laughs> uh, the, the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and has, I think, approved a lot of those, the NDAA, the but National Defense We remember the days not that long ago when adding People to the to, deficit yeah. was a big deal. Yeah, right? not to give away one of my stories that I'm looking at, but uh, one thing I've been looking at is how many members have debt clocks 
on their websites anymore. You used to see this all the time. The, the you know mm. members counting is a hokey thing, but um, all these guys, these Republicans who came into Congress in 2010, screaming about debt. You know, we got to get the debt under control, and the debt has exploded under, under their watch. Uh, the debt clocks are gone, right? People aren't. They don't want to talk about it. We're over 21 trillion in debt, and, and you know, not to be the, the this guy, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with me, but at some point, debt does matter, right? Where we are making massive interest payments on the debt, and it does chew up a sizable amount of, um, you know, uh, our budget. Um, the one, I, I say that as a liberal, as a progressive, I agree with you. At some yeah. point, debt. I think <clears throat> having some debt. Is can be healthy, you know. Right, it's right. N- not necessarily bad. We all have mortgages or car payments or something, but just to keep adding to the debt and think you can just put yeah. it on your credit card and you're never going to have to pay the bill and never pay any interest on it is just ridiculous, right? Yeah, and that's well, what we, they're doing. It's not that we're even paying it down on anything. We're, we're no, we keep on adding no. to it, right? Yeah, the deficit's exploding, totally. and Trump. All you know, not to bring this back to Trump, but uh, I, 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 I remember <laughs> them were saying. We're gonna have a seven trillion dollar surplus in in ten years. Uh, Sam mm-hmm. Clovis, one of his trusted uh, policy advisors, and yet that has gone by the wayside. No one, you know, no one seems to care. And he had some well, crazy the king of debt. I'm the king of debt, right? I'm the king. The, the king of debt is not gonna, <coughs> is really not going to care about right. He'll, right. He'll treat the country like he treats his business, which is the more debt, the better, because right. the more games he can play or kind of whatever. Um, so we started this week. This was a week um, um, with a Friday deadline looming uh, that the government was going to shut down. Looks like that's maybe not going to happen this week. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I, I in general think that we're looking. We're, it's a slow motion. Republicans are caving here. Um, the idea all along was <clears throat> let's get past the election and then we can fight on the wall. Mm-hmm. And this is actually this is every every time they have a funding crisis, uh, this same you know, line comes up, we'll, the next one will fight, right? Well, this was the one that they were saying, okay, the election's over, um, Democrats are taking back the House, this is the one we have to fight out for the wall funding. And despite Chuck Schumer's best efforts, uh, <laughs> there d- it doesn't seem like Republicans are really willing to fight on much money for this wall. Um, right now, I, we're talking a s- small amount of money, and, and part of this as, as well is, Democrats were actually successful in in this the strategy here, which was let's fund parts of the government. So even if there were a shutdown, the worst effects of that shutdown wouldn't happen. A lot of, more than half of the government is funded as it is right now, and then you have the essential services that would stay in. You know, even if you did have a, a quote shutdown, uh, uh, to use the again the Republican line. But Schumer is promising them one point six billion for the wall. Why yeah, give well, them anything for the wall? <clears throat> right, that's the question, and and um, I mean some of that is. First of all, they would say it's not wall; it's fencing. It's uh, border security needs, and and frankly, they've been successful in this game. Uh, I think the answer from Chuck Schumer, and it, again, this is Chuck Schumer's answer, not my answer. Yeah, is um, that look if you give Trump something in name, we know it's not a wall, but we basically get all these other priorities over here, and also there's a section of voters who really do believe. We need something for border security. We need something for the wall. And again, this is just in name only. This you know, one point six billion or whatever. So we take care of them. We're not saying we won't give you a dime for anything. We're saying no. We need border security. We need smart border security. It's just not a wall. Um, so in lost in that sort of you know that rhetorical game, they think a lot of voters 
you know, don't, you know, if it's, we, he won't give us one dime. It's not true. I'll give you 1.6 billion for board security and fencing and all these other things. And obviously a lot of Democrats are saying, why isn't our opening position zero? Uh, and that's a tough question for some Democrats to answer. Will um, Mitch McConnell eventually have to cave for and allow a vote on protection for Robert Mueller? Well, <clears throat> he certainly hasn't caved at this point, and he, and it's it's costing them at this at this point as well. Uh, Jeff Flake has said he's not going to vote to confirm any of their more of their justices without that Mueller protection bill. Um, so, if they haven't done it at this point, and I, it seems, you know, who knows where the Mueller investigation is, but it certainly seems like we're nearing some sort of conclusion here. Uh, he certainly seems yeah. to be preparing something big. Um, we haven't seen anyone protect Mueller. Uh, I, for all the gruff I can give Paul Ryan, the one thing I can say about him is he was somewhat clear in these press conferences that, you know, basically if Trump got rid of Mueller, we'd hire Mueller back this, the, the next second. Um, Nancy Pelosi is now a speaker, so you, you don't need to worry too much about that. Right. Yeah, he certainly um, has more protection now that Democrats have taken back uh, taken back the House. And with that, uh, we've got to say thank you, Matt. All right, <laughs> all yeah. right. Uh, and they were fast they're, and furious. They're they're up today, so you got to get back to work. Yeah, and that's it for us. We'll see you tomorrow. Show.